The sixth chapter, the third verse begins. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also Live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, I attended an early screening of a film that would go on and win two Academy Awards, nominated for many more, of course, Robert Duvall, Best Actor, and Horton Foote for Best Screenplay. The film was Tender Mercies, and it chronicled the redemption of a down-on-his-luck country music star named Mac Sledge. Horton Foote was there at this screening, as was the leading lady, Tess Hopper, and they stayed around afterwards, and I stayed around to talk with them. And Foote explained how he would go outside of the movie theater after the early screenings, much as a Playwright and Broadway goes, in that case, an intermission to listen to what people are saying about his play, or in this case, the film. He said to a surprise, by far the most commented on scene was the uh, rural, probably Baptist, baptism that uh, Robert Duvall's character and his stepson undergo about halfway through the film. He said, people said things like, do people really do that? What does it mean? What is it saying? When Jesus Christ wanted to declare who he was and what he had done and what we are to be, he used the most important devices available to him, artistry, metaphor, pictures, poetry. And the two most central metaphors, really small dramas, that he asks us to act out, we are, if you incorporate the 11 o'clock hour, going to rehearse both this morning. And so I thought it would be a good day to look briefly at both. The first picture we will see this week and next week, unfortunately, both at the 11 o'clock hour, is the picture of baptism. It means our lives are to be immersed, covered, 
connected to Christ. Paul put it like this in the text we've just read. If we have been united together in a death like his, we shall also be raised with him in a life like his. Apparently, whatever that connection and relationship is, it is going to be a union with his death and his life. In other words, we become when we become Christians, our lives are united to Christ and the benefits both of his death and of his resurrection become ours. I like to think of it this way. Do you uh, like to do any of a host of a bevy of things like skiing or swimming or scuba diving or sailing or even coasting downhill on a bike? If you do or if you even like to daydream about them, what is it about those activities that is so thrilling? I believe it is the fact that in each one of them we get a free ride on nature. Something larger and grander and more powerful than ourselves, be they they wind or waves or gravity, comes along and bears us up, carries us along on its strength and power. You are literally going along for the ride. That's what Christianity believes that God has done in Jesus Christ, the Christian Faith is the only religion I know that doesn't require you in some sense or another to become worthy in order to gain God's attention or favor. The Christian faith believes that followers of Jesus Christ are united to him first and all of his goodness and worth is attributed to us by grace. It is unearned. It's a gift. And though there is much to do in the Christian life, an eternity to do. Christianity is not primarily about learning good moral instruction, which, if we follow, will make God pleased with us. Christianity is primarily about the gracious gift of God's own self, in which our debts are paid and God's love is given. To be a Christian at its core is to accept the relationship that is offered by the death and resurrection of Jesus with the living God. It is to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the early earliest Christians knew full well what was involved in that kind of confession. It meant that they owed Jesus Christ everything, but it also meant that they knew that they didn't have to be afraid of anything, not Roman swords, nor cancer, nor death, nor things above, nor things below, nor principalities, nor powers, nothing. Now, many people think that that kind of belief today, however sweetly it might be presented, is simply ignorant and delusional. When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, we accept the fact that in the marketplace of ideas, we have to provide not just fond desires, but good evidence for, for the faith that we hold. And we should, and we can, and we do. There have been alternative explanations offered for what happened that day, hallucinations and fraud and swoon and legend, and I'm not going to take the time to rehearse them here. Suffice it to say, 
that to objective and disinterested minds, all of those alternatives have been found wanting. And there are strong evidences for what the Bible records that happened that day. There's an empty tomb. There are appearances to disciples which did not take decades to develop, but which historiographically we can say, almost without precedent, are contemporaneous with the events themselves. We can establish that. In a 700-page book on the resurrection, N.T. Wright says not only are the appearances in the empty tomb strong evidences, but they, they work together to make it even exponentially more powerful. If there was an empty tomb but no appearances, we could attribute that to theft of a body. If there were appearances but the tomb were still occupied, we would know that it was some kind of uh, hallucinational delusions. Uh, All four Gospels record that Jesus first appeared, the risen Christ, to women. In a culture in which women could not even give testimony in courts, the only conceivable reason for the record to retain those accounts is that because it happened that way. It's more difficult for, it's a difficult thing for a person to lay down their life for a friend, but for a lie, almost all of the apostles' tradition and history tells us went to the death for their understanding of the belief that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. All of these things, Wright argues, are historically secure. And they are the experience of Christians throughout the centuries. But in the book we looked at a couple of years ago now, The Reason for God, Tim Keller makes a contrastingly interesting point. He writes, it's often overlooked that the resurrection also puts a burden of proof on non-believers. It isn't enough simply to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You must then come up with some historically plausible alternate alternate explanation for the birth of the church. N.T. Wright makes a scathing response to those who would... um, Dismiss Christian claims something like this. Well, we uh, understand that the primitive mind was more superstitious than ours. It didn't have a scientific point of view. That Jesus' Messiah was missed and there was a fond delusion to, that he was present and guiding and leading them. And so the gospel narratives were written to rehearse those events. N.T. Wright makes this scathing response. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb in the meetings or sightings of the risen Christ. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. C.S. Lewis uh, calls it chronological snobbery. To think that we have a, a cultural window which is clear and pure and that ancient minds were primitive and superstitious. It was as difficult for them to believe, Wright makes the point, the resurrection, as it is for our day and time, maybe more so. To the Greek mind, upon death, no freed spirit would ever return to a body. The body was corrupt and defiled. And although there was emerging a hope and a resurrection of the Jewish mind, a death 
was not a release, it was a tragedy. And so there was developing the Jewish mind a hope in the resurrection of the end of history, and everything would be set right, and everyone would be raised. There would be no concept of an individual resurrection, much less in a Unitarian monotheistic mind, worshipping immediately, as the Jewish Christian Church did, both Christ and Father, Son and Father, and very soon the Spirit in this triune understanding of God. So right building on that rights, nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt. No matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures to suggest otherwise, is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. What I hope for all of us here today, though, myself included, is not that we celebrate the baptism of Chi Croker and next week Sue Lin as some historical event which is provable, though there is strong evidence for it, but to receive it as Chi and Su Lin have and will as the most important word they will ever hear in their lives. It is a truth to ground our minds and a presence to feed our soul and a grace to change our hearts and a mission to direct our lives. That's one picture that we're rehearsing today. The second is like unto it of baptism is a celebration of immersion into Christ at the beginning of our walk. The Lord's table is our celebration of our union with Christ and our continuing walk with him. Jesus says we are to remember him, his body broken, his blood shed, his life poured out. In a way through which we will experience ourselves as nourished by him and fed by him and filled by him, the Lord's Supper is a reminder and a pointer of an invitation to communion with Christ. If we were to ask in what ways we are to conceive and understand this communion with Christ, I think we could answer in two different ways, from two different ends of the drama of salvation. We could go at one end to God's purposes for the world, for his intention for creation. We could go beyond creation to the life of God himself. Verse 10b, Paul writes, The life that Jesus lives, he lives to the Father. Christians believe that at the very heart of God, in the very essence of God himself, is a divine dance of love. Each person of the Trinity loves and adores and defers to and rejoices in the other. This creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early Greek fathers called perichoretic. You don't have to be put off by that word. You can love it. Because it, uh, it says what it means. Para, periscope, around. Korain, corral choreography to dance. The Father and Son and Spirit from all eternity are perichoretically other-oriented, dynamically, pulsatingly oriented towards the other. 
There is delight and joy from all eternity. And then the story of creation is that God, who is eternal love, does not create out of need, but out of sheer extravagant delight and grace to give and share the other-oriented delight which is His. That's the purpose of creation. That's the joy of God's creations. That's the purpose of our life. So if uh, you in your life want to favor money or success or prestige or accomplishment over human relationships, you will find that your life is destroyed on the rocks of reality. The deepest reality of the universe is God's delightful, gracious, joy-giving, other-oriented love. That's why we were created. And that's what we are invited into to share. That's the description of God's purpose looking at one end of the drama of salvation. But many writers have said that uh, the drama of God's salvation is in four acts. Creation and fall. And redemption and restoration. And if we look at the story of this table from the other end, it is also beautiful, but more complex. No other major religious faith holds any hope or even interest in the restoration of the world. One Christian apologist writes, all other religions offer salvation some form of liberation from ordinary humanness, but salvation is seen in these religions as escape from the shackles of individuality and physical embodiment into some kind of transcendent spiritual existence. But biblical salvation lies not in the escape from the world, but in the transformation of it. You will not find hope for the world in any of the religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. The Bible talks about the first Adam and the new Adam in Jesus Christ. The first Adam came and was told not to eat of the fruit of a tree. And when, when the reasoning is asked, no answer is given. If an answer were given, we would be forcing God to orient himself around our goals and purposes. God is the end of our living, never the means. God says, I don't want you to eat of this tree. There may be reasons we don't need to know them. I'm telling you this. And don't eat just for love of me. And we failed. And our relationship was broken. And the Bible tells us all of our other relationships were hurt and damaged and broken as well. Even our relationship with nature itself. But then the new Adam came and lived the life we should have lived that we might be joined to it and participate with him in it. When you ask why he did, why he died for our sake, the answer is for no reason at all. Remember, he came from infinite joy and love and self-giving. He did it freely. And if you are moved by that, 
if your life is shaped and changed, if you are drawn into relationship with the one who has given his relational love to you, then all your relationships will be changed. And in time, the world with it will be healed. And you will be made new. Father, we are awed by your gift to us and by the power of the pictures that you have given us to rehearse that we might never, never, never forget the gift you give to us and the claim you make on us. As we gather around this table, may all of those who have been baptized in your name have catalyzed for us a awareness of your presence, a communion with your love, and a power to live the life to which we are called. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.